0: Tune in to The Manifesto, hosted by Emily Wheaton, Logan Cook, and Logan Bishop, the Political Science Society's new radio cast, catch us on the local 107.3 FM, wherever you find podcasts.
1: Boom. Welcome to the Manifesto. I'm your host, Logan. Today, my guest is Megan Mann, MLA for, for Member Cook Tantrum. Hi, Megan.
0: Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? Good, thank you.
1: The first question I want to ask you about is your writing is getting split. Your writing will not exist come the next provincial election. What do you think of that?
0: Well... This has a long history, actually. Um, and really, some of the issue comes, goes back to when they switched from having 55 MLAs to 49 MLAs, which is how many we have now. And so that put pressure on, on when they redraw the boundaries. Um, Cook used to be with Dieppe and uh, about 10 years ago, got joined with Tantramar, and I, I live in Tantramar. And, um, and then I was elected in 2018 at, to, to represent Marron Cook Tantramar. Marron Cook's going back with Dieppe. Um, and then it's proposed that a little piece of, of another riding that's primarily Francophone be joined with Tantramar. And so I've been advocating for those folks. Um, if, if, you know, Marron Cook has argued in terms of, um, their linguistic rights and being a community of interest that they mm-hmm. should be joined with dieppe and so if if the commission agrees with that then they can't do the same thing to to kapakadi so it gets into the the nitty-gritty but what it comes down to is trying to make sure that you have ridings where you can have effective representation so i've been just trying to to you know represent everyone in my riding and and fight for the folks in kapakadi as well
1: you, as you said, you were elected in 2018. You were elected by 11 votes. You've been an incumbent liberal by 11. Can you talk about your campaign and how you beat an incumbent liberal in the writing that's typically favorable to the liberals?
0: Yeah, that that was a stressful night because I was we were within 10 votes of each other for hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we were just watching refresh, refresh. Um, yes, 11 votes. So I like to tell that story to even though we're in a first past the post uh, situation and I think we should have proportional representation. Try to tell that story because your vote just might be the one that makes a difference. Um Yes, so that campaign, um, you know, I had run in 2014, actually the first year that Member Cook and Teichemar were joined. I was up against two incumbents that year. Um, the Liberal one won, and then that's who I ran against in 2018. Um, in 2016, I ran for municipal council and was elected as a town councillor in Sackville. And so I got some experience as an elected official representing my community. And and I do think that that, that helped to, to be able to to you know, present myself with the Green Party in 2018. Um, I I knocked on a lot of doors. I listened to people. I learned everything I could about my community, and um, and you know, uh, we we had we had a strong campaign, and and we didn't take it for granted. We worked hard right to the last minute, um, and so I was really proud to be elected, and then re-elected in 2020. So um, so yeah, I, that's that's the the brief history of what happened.
1: Your writing has a sizable francophone minority in it. How did you and your constituents feel about the Higgs French immersion? I don't even know what to call elimination plan. That's what I'll call it. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I think I think the word elimination um, is accurate, even though the government tried to say it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this um, was especially important in the anglophone part of my writing, where um, there are... A lot of people who who really value the French immersion program, um, but then there are even Francophone students who, uh, like who go to the Anglophone schools and take French immersion. Um, they're ayant droit, like they have the right to go to French schools, but they might not because of travel reasons. And so there yeah. there was a big group of people who who were against it and. What it came down to was they were claiming it was going to fix all kinds of problems that it wasn't going to fix. Um, and they didn't have a plan. Like they didn't know what they were doing. And it's quite embarrassing and, and frankly, surprising that they, they went through all of that. Um, and I'm glad they've backed off. I'm glad mm-hmm. that they, they listened and to, you know, people spoke out and, and they, it made them stop. Um, but it was, it, it makes you worried about, like, how is this government being run? How, do, how can you just throw out a plan that's half-baked um, and and not be ready to defend it? And they've done this with multiple policies. They've done it with the rent cap as well, where they just throw things out and they, they don't really have a plan yet. And so it's not a good way to govern.
1: Let's talk about the rent cap. I saw, I think it was today, that Nova Scotia extended theirs until 2025. The Hayes government decided end of last year that it was not needed, it was not working. But as we can see, it was clearly working and it is clearly needed. Can you talk about your opinions on the rent cap?
0: Uh, I've been advocating for a rent cap for, for years. I've been advocating for the Higgs government to do something about the escalating housing crisis. And for a long time, they just said Higgs claimed there, there wasn't a housing crisis an affordable housing crisis. Yeah. Um, he was clearly wrong. Um, and, and then they, again, I don't know why they do the things they do, um, but they brought in a rent cap because they realized they really had to, but it was hastily put together. It was retroactive. The civil service was not ready for it. And, mm-hmm. um, And it was confusing and it was temporary and now it's gone and people are getting serious rent increases. And the residential Tenancies Tribunal cannot keep up with their their workload because the the complaints have increased significantly. And, you know, I think there should be a permanent rent cap and there should be um, protections in place uh, to, to make sure that um housing is protected for people and the people aren't being priced out of their housing in unfair ways like is happening now but even if they didn't want it to be permanent how could they when they like arguably the conditions have not changed things are not better now um than they were a few months ago how could they justify getting rid of it and they have not been able to they claim that it it's been a problem um De- discouraging development, but that's not true. They also, at the same time, are claiming that, are saying, well, housing starts are up and development has increased. So they just are talking out of both sides of their mouths and it's it's really, um, it's unacceptable because who... Is hurt in the end. Well, it's the seniors on fixed income. It's the students who can't find housing. It's the families who mm-hmm. are moving into their cars or couch surfing. Uh, it's the people who've moved into tents. It's the the people who have literally died outside in New Brunswick. So um, that's that's what it really comes down to. And this government is is so out of touch with what's really happening uh, in New Brunswick.
1: Uh, yes, the housing crisis. It's no matter. Like I'm I'm here in Saint John, so. Big, second biggest city, housing crisis here. I'm from a town of 1,500 in the southwest part of the province. Housing crisis there, no matter where you go in the province, there's not enough housing and the rents are, frankly, outrageously priced for
0: what they are. Mm-hmm. It, exactly, and I think that's a key thing that can get missed, but it's it, it is an urban problem, but it's not just an urban problem. It's happening in rural areas. I represent a rural region and... Yeah, it's happening. It's happening everywhere, and so that means there needs to be a really robust response. Um, but it feels like the government's still in the well, let's like look at the issue phase. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what they've been waiting for. I don't get it.
1: The continuing housing. What do you think the government should do to, quote unquote, solve the housing crisis that we're experiencing?
0: So it is a complex problem. That means the solution is going to be complex. Mm -hmm. That's okay. So that means there's lots of things we can do. Um, Having a rent cap that protects people and keeps people housed right now is a priority. Mm -hmm. Um, Reviewing and improving the Residential Tenancies Act to improve protections for tenants is important to prevent rent evictions, for example, where people... Um, are basically forced out of their, their housing um, <laughs> under the guise of, of renovations. Yeah. Um, then there's also, um, you know, the need for a rental registry, the, the need for more transparency when it comes to, to you know, the rental situation. Um, and so that's that's some of the legislative side of it. Funding. So for decades, the federal and provincial governments have just washed their hands of housing and said, well, like, good luck. We don't really want to deal with this. And and here we are where we don't have enough housing stock. Um, NB Housing has a wait list that's doubled in the last few years. Um, and and a lot of their housing's, like, not up to code. Uh, yes. We could even get into the issue of, like, radon gas levels being above uh, acceptable levels in a lot of nb housing uh we anyway that's a whole other you know can of worms um and and so we need investments and partnerships where the government is just actively you know making it easier for nonprofits for cooperatives um to to build housing mm-hmm. and the government needs to build more. They are talking about building 400 units over several years and, and renovating a hundred. That's not good enough. The wait list is like 8,000 people for NB housing. And that's not everyone who needs access to affordable housing. That's the people who are on the wait list. Yeah. So um, there's just a whole lot more that needs to be done. And so of course the private sector is going to play a part, but we can't rely on the market to deal with everything. It The, the market can't do that is and doesn't do that and so we need to make sure there's public investment and to I think fundamentally if we were thinking about housing affordable housing as a human right we'd have to take a different approach but it's clear they don't think housing is a human right or they would be doing things differently
1: I interviewed uh, Brent Harris the city councillor here in St. John back in January and we Mm -hmm. talked about housing in the city and his big thing was uh the the, what was it, the new Brunswick Housing Corporation like we had before the 1980s where the government had, they built houses and yeah. apartments, they maintained them and they ran them. Like, yeah. He's like, bring that back so we can have good government investing in housing again.
0: Yeah and so that is something that the Greens uh, here in the legislature we've been calling for and um, they actually just announced very recently that they're gonna to listen to us and they are going to revive the NB Housing Corporation. Okay. So that, um, I'm glad that they're gonna do that. That is not the end of it. That's the, the beginning. That's mm-hmm. that's really just restructuring and giving staff to the Minister of Housing. Um I'm the critic for housing. There there's a Minister of Housing um, Jill Green she's been there for um, you know several months as the, the minister but I was asking her in committee she had no staff like how is she supposed to do anything mm-hmm. so at least the, the, if they put some resources behind it that's got to make things better but but yeah absolutely they, they need to invest they need to commit to creating more housing
1: uh, Tuesday was budget day here in the province
0: mm-hmm.
1: can you talk about what you like that you saw in the budget and why you were disappointed was not included in the budget?
0: Sure. Um, I will be fair and talk about something I saw in the budget that I liked. And it's something I've been fighting for. <laughs> and that is for coverage for <laughs> continuous glucose monitoring and other um, supplies and getting rid of the age cap for, um, for certain um supplies related, medical supplies related to diabetes. Mm -hmm. I've been fighting for that. um, And so I was very glad to see that in there. That's about the only thing that was in terms of healthcare, in terms of preventative healthcare, like thinking long-term, thinking about how it's actually, if, if we're looking at the budget, it actually costs less to invest in people's health earlier on upstream. I will say, yes, I'm glad I've been fighting for that. That's good. Otherwise you know not really impressed there's not much there for to respond to what people need right now um there's not really anything anything there to respond to the needs of the working class the, the needs of people living in poverty um there's there and there's a lot of recycled things not a lot of new things in there um and so I would have liked to see, like, a huge investment in um, in housing. I would have liked to see, like, a focus on retention of healthcare workers and, and other staff, like... Um teachers, for example, I would have liked to see an investment in the Chignecto Isthmus, which is a, um, it's the land that connects my riding to Nova Scotia and it is at risk of flooding. Um, it's actually the second most vulnerable place in North America in terms of climate change, in terms of flooding after New Orleans. And we know what happened in New Orleans with, um, the, the levees uh, breaching. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there's a lot of things that I would have liked to see. They um, just are missing the mark on on so many things. They're so out of touch and not listening to what the people of New Brunswick really need.
1: Let's talk about the healthcare system. We can both agree it's in it's in a state of chaos. It's mm-hmm. it's a, I, I call it a joke. There's a long wait there's long wait times in ERs. There's long wait times for surgery. Seventy thousand plus people on a waiting list to get a family doctor. What do you think the government, the government, the provincial government and the feds need to do to help fix the healthcare system?
0: There's so much. And I'll I'll say this again, to be fair, again, complex problem, complex solution. So what do we need to do? A lot. I will. To start off with, again, say, why are we not doing anything with prevention? If you look at what the reports from, like, the Nurses' Union, uh, the Medical Society, the first thing, like, the key things they talk about is the government needs to invest in prevention. Um, Mm -hmm. The doctors say um, you need to address poverty because if we don't address prevention and the social determinants of health and intervene earlier... then then things get worse. And so that needs to be part of the solution. And they're they're missing the mark. They don't get it. Um, We need to focus on retention of healthcare workers. It's become a story this week that Nova Scotia is offering retention bonuses to nurses and other healthcare workers New Brunswick is not. And they're acting like they're caught off guard. But the nurses union is saying, we propose this to you. And we already know Newfoundland, Labrador, and PEI already offered retention bonuses. And so this shouldn't come as a surprise. And they, again, don't seem to understand retention, that that's really key. If you are just focused on recruitment and not retention, it's like pouring water into a bucket full of holes. And that's what's happening. So many... Uh, healthcare workers and nurses are leaving. They're retiring early. They're becoming travel nurses where they can make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a crisis. Um, and, and then we need access to that healthcare. And so from a patient perspective, yeah, what does that look like when you're waiting for, for surgeries, when you're uh, waiting in the ER? We need to make sure that there's primary care. And part of that could be by making sure people have access to family doctors or nurse practitioners or midwives, like other types of healthcare professionals uh, could be brought in to, you know, we, we can have urgent care centers or collaborative uh, care practices where um, people can get the care that they need. And then of course the ERs, we we need to make sure that the, the ERs are properly staffed. It It is a complex system, but they're really dropping the ball just across the board. And when what it comes back to is... Listen to the people working in the system. They know it's working. Yeah. They know it's not working. But this government isn't interested in listening.
1: Uh, next, I want to talk about renewable energy. I, I interviewed uh, Kevin Arsenal roughly a month ago, and we had a we had a discussion about how the government and NP Power can invest more in renewable energy. What do you... Th- how can the government invest more in renewable energy, and what is what is your opinion on an energy source like those small modular reactors in nuclear power as a whole?
0: Mm-hmm. So, the government could and absolutely should mm-hmm. invest more in renewable energy, and should figure out ways to promote uh, renewable energy projects in communities. Um, they seem afraid of diversifying and decentralizing the power system. But that's exactly what needs to happen. That's exactly where we're going in the future. And so they need to embrace that. Um, And so renewables are cheaper and more effective than ever. And battery storage keeps getting better. Like there are pathways to do this. There's just this hesitation uh, on behalf of enemy power and on behalf of government. So let's invest in that. Uh, And investing in energy efficiency is um one of the best things we could do and not only would it help people with their power bills uh their energy costs which is a huge problem right now and we know the cost of living is really you know with inflation it's getting out of control um it would help them it would reduce our energy needs um it's just a win-win-win like the return on investment is is great and so they need to accelerate energy efficiency and getting heat pumps to replace oil and, and baseboard heating, and they need to facilitate that going faster and just just do it and make it make even the financing more accessible or just do it for people who can't afford it. Like we are not moving fast enough. We saw the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report this week saying, like, "This is your last chance."." Mm-hmm to uh keep things hopefully below 1.5 degrees celsius of warming which for some people 1.5 to stay alive like that's a real thing people are already losing their lives because of, of climate crisis um and and like every degree matters we need to move faster um small modular nuclear reactors um Lots of questions. I'm not convinced that yeah. this is the right thing to do. Uh, we had hearings, hearing from experts on both sides. Um, so, and by experts, I guess proponents would be like the people who are running the companies and are hoping to profit from them. And then um, scientists and and, um, and like professors and researchers um, telling us like, don't do this. This is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can be really expensive. It's unreliable. I mean, it's different from Point LePro in some ways, but we've seen how expensive and unreliable Point LePro has been in terms of nuclear power production. Yeah. Um, and it's not fast either. So again, we're talking about a really short timeline in terms of energy, um, like needing to switch to renewables, needing to reduce our emissions and they they don't even think it would be ready if it can be done because again this is technology that hasn't been proven um they're talking about like a decade out so it doesn't even meet the timelines we need like it just doesn't make sense so um no i don't think that's the right path we have technology right now so let's use that renewable energy
1: uh, I saw a CBC article that you urged a health minister to look at environmental causes regarding that mysterious brain disease that the government announced in 2021, which I don't mm-hmm. think no one knows what it is. Can you talk more about that disease and why you think it's environmental factors c- causing it?
0: Yeah. So this is such a, a scary thing, really. Like yeah. we don't know what's happened but we know something happened and the government really just like shut it down and rejected money and help from public health agency of canada and federal researchers and five million dollars left on the table they said oh like we'll let you know if we need help and they did you know i questioned the methodology they did surveys um, where um, they didn't even, like, meet with the patients uh, or do more testing. They just, like, asked them, like, have you eaten lobster? Have you eaten different things? But, like, over 90% said they'd eaten lobster. Like, that's significant. Um, for example, and we we know that BMAA, so that's um, been connected to – neurological degeneration and we we know that that comes from uh, harmful algal bloom so like blue green algae we know it's it's showing up more in our water um mm-hmm. and and that it, it it creates it's called it's cyanobacteria it creates cyanotoxins and so i think part of this gets difficult to communicate because we're talking about these big words for chemicals and 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 cyanobacteria and all these things. But what it comes down to is that there could be environmental factors that have not been ruled out that could have caused um, neurodegenerative disease in people. And it's been showing up in a lot of young people. And that's not normal. They are presenting with atypical symptoms. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not adding up. And the government capped how many people they were counting. They, they are like, oh, it's around fifty. There's like over a hundred that that have like raised their hands, but the government just stopped counting, stopped tracking it. Like, doesn't want to have that information for some reason. So it. it they have handled it in a way that makes it look like they're trying to cover something up, makes it look like they don't want to know. And But there are people dying, like people have died. There are yeah. people who they're losing, uh, like their symptoms are impacting their lives. People who, you know, have spoken publicly and have said like they can't work anymore. They can't take care of themselves. And they want answers. And I think New Brunswickers want answers. What has happened? And they haven't ruled out the environmental um Factors and so until they do then they, they they need to look into it and 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 clear that up like what we need answers
1: um, They go back to your writing being split up Do you plan on running re-election and if so do you plan on running in tantrum or in the new df member cook writing?
0: So yes, I, I am planning to, to run for reelection, uh, in 2024. If, if that's when the election is, you never know with Higgs. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah. So I live in, in Tantramar. I grew up in Sackville and that's kind of in the middle of my riding. And so I would, I would present myself as a, a candidate in, in the riding of Tantramar since, since that's where I, I live.
1: I see, I think it was yesterday, the Premier announced the by, those by-election dates for the three by-elections, the two up north and the one in D. F. How do you feel about the Greens' chances in those ridings?
0: Well, we're really excited. Uh, not all of our candidates have been announced, but we are excited about our candidate candidates. Um, up in uh, Restegue-Chaleur, mm-hmm. uh, Rachel Boudreau is a phenomenal candidate candidate she is the the former mayor of petit rocher um she's a former nurse she um is really connected in her community and and knows her community has experience representing her community and um and so i'm really excited about her campaign and you know uh can't wait to, to welcome her to sit with us in the legislature and and have four greens. I, I'm I'm excited uh, about that that uh, possibility.
1: This is a question I asked both Kevin and Dave at one of you know back in last year. What do you like? What are the Greens going to? What's what's your platform going to be in 2024? How do you, how do you plan on winning more votes and potentially winning more seats?
0: So one thing with the Greens is that. We we base our policies and our work on, um, you know, participatory democracy, being connected to our communities and being voices for our communities, um, Mm -hmm. social justice, equity, um, environmental sustainability. So our values don't change, like they're the party values. And so no matter what, our platform and her policies are are going to have that foundation. Um, And so... We don't base our policy on which way the wind's blowing and which way the polls <laughs> are are going. Mm-hmm. We have grassroots um, participation in forming our policies, um, and we we'll also, of course, need to respond to what's going on. And so, some of the priorities that are key right now um, are around. Healthcare, making the proper investments, focusing on retention, um, as well as recruitment and, um, making sure that there's access to healthcare in rural areas as well as urban areas, um, expanding the scope of practice and the support for different types of healthcare workers. And so healthcare needs to be a priority, um, housing investing in housing um, and protecting tenants, uh, making sure that we're creating an environment as well, where it's not just government building housing, but cooperatives and nonprofits have a clearer pathway with financing to be able to do that. Um, And then we certainly need to think about um, the climate crisis and move way faster. And again, we think of the climate crisis that can be a really big Thing to think about. It impacts a lot of things. But w- what we we're talking about is like, what kind of food production do we have in New Brunswick? We're nowhere near where we need to be in terms of growing our own food, even just produce. We're at like 7%. And the goal of the government is just to get to 10% um, in terms of growing our own fruits and vegetables, let alone all the other things we consume. And so... Focusing on things like that. Again, energy efficiency, lower people's bills and uh, lower energy use. There's, there's so many things that we could be doing. Um, and, and then looking at things like universal basic income, like having livable wages and livable income for people. Um, it's so tough and really shameful The what's happening right now in terms of people living in poverty, whether they're, you know, working class or they're someone with a disability benefit, the, the, the policies are just unacceptable. So we can do better. New Brunswickers mm-hmm. deserve better. Um, it doesn't have to be this way. We can choose differently. These are just decisions that have been made. We can make different decisions.
1: Uh, this is, a, this is an ongoing thing. It's the local government reform. If the elections were held last fall. I live in a community that was amalgamated into a big one. It was mm-hmm. the biggest local government reform since the late 60s.
0: How did mm-hmm. you feel about the whole reform? What's really frustrating about it is that I think everyone agreed there needed to be reform. Yeah. But it was rushed. Mm-hmm. It um it wasn't responsive to the feedback that, that um communities were given. Um and even the minister was like, there won't be forced amalgamations, and then there were. So like it the trust was broken, frankly, through the process. And there are still repercussions happening right now. So the municipalities have been formed um, in my community. Um, now, Straight Shores and Tantramar are are the two municipalities, the new municipalities, where amalgamations have happened, and um, there's a lot to still figure out. But it it was rushed and uh, not not well thought out, and so it's um, it's a missed opportunity, really, because more power and resources need to be at the local level and mm-hmm. have decision-making. And I think that's true for education and healthcare and roads and everything. And that's not really um, how it's panning out uh, in, in, in an effective way. So again, I think a missed opportunity is really, really what this has been. Um, and in some cases, um, a failed opportunity.
1: <laughs> I feel like it wasn't well, the public really didn't know about it. Like yeah. the election down home, it was thirty percent turnout in a community of seven thousand people. That the turnout was abysmal because mm-hmm. people just didn't know that it was happening. They didn't. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people didn't know it was happening until the elections already happened. Yeah,
0: no one told yeah. them. It was really poorly communicated um, by the provincial government. There was not enough funding for communication, mm-hmm. and not and not enough um, provincial communication to say like this is what's happening. And then there was even um, <laughs> Elections New Brunswick um, told some people there was an election when there wasn't and told some people there wasn't an election when there was. Uh, so that was a mess too.
1: A question that I ask all my guests is probably the favorite question I ask everybody. What do you think about first past the post in changing the electoral system something more, proper, more proportional?
0: Mm-hmm. I think we should do that. Um, and I'm not alone. Uh, proportional representation and specifically a mixed member proportional representation system, um, I think, is what we need in New Brunswick. And it's actually um, been proposed in reports by previous governments. Um, there are so many reports that are done, they're great, they have great things in them, they've done consultations, and then they sit on a shelf. And this is one of them. Um, and so we need better uh, representation. And uh, proportional representation has been shown to Increase the diversity of candidates and people elected. Increase the number of women, people of color, and and different um, underrepresented groups um, mm-hmm. who've been excluded traditionally from from politics. And so that's a good reason. Um, and right now, like the way it works, it it's not great. And people know that. A lot of people might decide not to participate and engage in the process because. They don't like it because it's not—it's um, not very effective. First past the post has has limitations, especially if you have more than two parties, and we do—we <laughs> we have multi-party system, and we need a system that um, that can handle that.
1: I I will say that the response one you just gave is typical of mostly the Greens and the, the New Democrats that I've interviewed. The Liberals and the Conservatives are more reserved about changing it because it would yeah. not help them.
0: Well, that's the thing. they would not want to give up their potential to have a hundred percent power. And mm-hmm. that's what happens in majority governments. Um, and, and traditionally they've just, it's been conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal, and they've just been in government or government in waiting and they didn't really need to do anything because they were just waiting, biding their time, and then they'd have 100% power again. And so we're not in that that situation anymore. Not that that was a good situation, but it's not even the reality anymore. And so, um, no, I can see why they wouldn't want to have, <laughs> give up their 100% power, but that's not right. Like, that's not right for um, for them to be able to to be in that situation when they don't have the majority of support from New Brunswickers. So, um so I'd like to see them get on board, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, I, I'm not holding my breath.
1: Uh, my final question for you is: What do you feel is your biggest achievement as MLA?
0: Oh goodness, um, that's a that's a an interesting question. I I guess achievement is also an interesting word. I would say like what I'm proud of, some of the work I do like isn't visible, but Mm -hmm. what we are able to do to achieve in in my office is like helping people um, stay in their housing or, or get access to income or like resolve problems, get the healthcare that they need sometimes. So like that type of thing isn't super visible, but like that makes a difference in people's lives and so that's it's really you know important to me um at a legislative level um I'm proud of of being in the legislature and raising issues forcing issues saying things that have never been said before that um that wouldn't otherwise be debated and so um I think that important we have been able to influence policy in in the legislature definitely we and um it's not everything we would want to see if we were in government, um, obviously, but we've been able to, to have some changes, whether it be that, um, we got Higgs to, to stop, um, to not close the, the rural ERs, um, mm-hmm. to index, um, social assistance to CPI, um, which, not good enough. They need to raise it, but is is better. It's it's still something that needed to be done. Um, and so we have been able, um, and even getting uh, universal coverage for the flu vaccine. That's something I've been pushing for. Diabetes coverage. So there are things we've been able to do. Uh, it's not everything we want to do, but um, but I I guess I'm glad I'm proud to to work with with David and Kevin and and my green colleagues to to uh, to make a difference.
1: Uh, that's all my question. Do you have anything you want to say to people listening to this?
0: Um, well, I, I guess uh, I, I want to thank you for for taking the time to, to chat with me. It's, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Um, what I would say is, you know politicians play a role, um, but civil society, plays a really important role and I think there's room for civil society to take up more space in the public discourse and to to force issues and and force <laughs> put pressure on government and so um, you know engaging in electoral politics is one way to make a difference um, but I, I, I do encourage people to to see you know where can they they try to move the needle and and work collaboratively within civil society and even across. Um across movements you know racial justice and environmental movements and pay equity and they're they're all connected ultimately about changing the systems and so you know what can be done there and I think that's that's what's exciting to me is um, seeing that type of work being done so uh, I'd encourage people to to see what what they can do um, you know it doesn't need to be electoral politics um, but that's also cool too
1: <laughs> well Megan uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to to do this interview you're very
0: welcome it was nice to to chat with you
1: I can I can now say I've interviewed all three green MLA's
0: there you go and then you'll have to interview the fourth after the by-election <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you all right thank you have a good day you too bye
1: bye this has been the manifesto I will I'm your host uh, Logan Cook today my guest was Megan Min Green MLA from Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to the Manifesto podcast brought to you by the UNBSJ Politics Society. I'm your host, Logan Cook.